We had heard a lot of rumors, like he threw puppies into the audience. A lot of the rumors were spread via the internet. The thing called Post American Family Association's so called affidavits, which apparently were lies, blatant lies. Maryland agents can walk into our town and promote hate, violence, suicide, death, drug use, and Columbine-like behavior. I can say, not without a fight, you can't. It's always about being yourself and, and not being ashamed of being different or thinking different. Um, I try and take everyone's ideals, common morals, flip them around, make people look at them differently, question them so that uh, you're not always taking things for granted. That's not the way the media wants to take it and spin and turn it into fear because then you're watching television, you're watching the news, you're being pumped full of fear. And there's You are listening to the Marilyn Manson Cases podcast, the podcast discussing the accusations, lawsuits, and legal news surrounding shock rocker Marilyn Manson. Please note topics include allegations of abuse some may find disturbing. Welcome back to the Marilyn Manson Cases podcast. I'm your host, Lisa, also known as the Manson Cases on social media. In today's episode, I will be discussing the latest updates from this past summer, which unfolded during the brief podcast hiatus. The last two episodes focused on the upcoming Jane Doe trial, but it's time to catch up on recent developments in the other lawsuits. First, I will start with a look into Ashley Walters' appeal, and then check in on the status of Bianca Kine's lawsuit in New York, who is a former Jane Doe lawsuit. Then, I will dive into the ongoing appeal filed by Marilyn Manson in his lawsuit against Evan Rachel Wood and Ashley Ilma Gore. Last, I want to explore the topic of an upcoming documentary that has been discussed in recent weeks on social media. It's a documentary centered around Marilyn Manson, and I want to discuss what I know about it and its potential implications. Also, I want to address the concerning issue of misinformation spreading across Manson hate pages on social media, especially as it pertains to the upcoming Jane Doe trial. It's essential to ensure that the facts are clear, regardless of your stance on the Manson allegations, because, as we know, facts matter. Since the previous podcast episode aired two weeks ago, there have been no notable changes or significant developments in the Jane Doe lawsuit against Manson. As of now, the trial is scheduled to proceed on October 3rd in Los Angeles. According to court records, a final status conference is set for September 25th, a status conference is a meeting held prior to the trial where attorneys from opposing parties and sometimes a judge will convene. In civil cases, these status conferences encompass a range of activities, including evidence exchange, agreement on specific terms, and the initiation of negotiations for a settlement agreement. Occasionally, a judge may preside over a status conference to offer insights into plea or settlement offers and establish timelines for other pretrial proceedings. The significance here might mean we could learn if there are or have been settlement talks taking place after a report is filed, as a settlement can occur at any time up to jury deliberations, which could give us a clue to what is occurring behind the scenes and whether or not we can look forward to a trial at all. This brings us to the latest developments in Jane Doe's lawsuit against Manson during this past summer. 
In July, both Manson and Jane Doe submitted a joint stipulation requesting a trial date postponement from this October to April 2024. This request stemmed from the November 2021 Los Angeles Sheriff's Department raid on Manson's residence, during which they seized digital devices crucial for evidence on both sides. Remarkably, these items have yet to be returned, and the investigation remains open, even though the results were sent to the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office over a year ago. However, the judge ruled against this request without prejudice, indicating that it can be resubmitted for consideration. Approximately a month later, Manson's attorneys independently filed a similar request for a trial date change. Their argument hinges on the fact that the digital devices are still in the sheriff's department's possession, and they likely contain communications that contradict Doe's allegations, which she did not provide during the discovery process. In conjunction with this filing, Manson submitted a new declaration, revealing previously undisclosed information. This declaration discloses that he was served with two separate search warrants on two different dates. The first occurred on November 29, 2021, which received significant media attention. The second search warrant was issued on December 7, 2021, for a storage unit rented by Manson, and provided a receipt he received detailing what was taken which is what makes this more interesting. Noted in a receipt from the storage unit, the sheriff's department describes taking a camcorder cassette titled Groupie, which isn't just important context as it relates to Doe's lawsuit, but also Manson's lawsuit against Wood and Gore. He further explains that the sheriff's department confiscated three Apple laptops, 24 external hard drives, three Apple iPhones, and numerous USB and SD drives. Manson believes that these digital devices contain text and email communications dating back to 2011 that he asserts are inconsistent with the evidence presented by Jane Doe. In response to this filing, Jane Doe's attorney stated this in response, quote, On December 14, 2021, the parties entered into a stipulated protective order that was signed by the court. Subsequently, defendant produced documents responsive to plaintiff's requests. To date, defendant has not taken plaintiff's deposition, nor has defendant sought to take the depositions of anyone identified in plaintiff's discovery responses. Defendant has also not conducted any other third-party discovery, such as issuing subpoenas. On July 18, 2023, the court heard defendant's ex parte application to continue the trial date, which I appeared for. The court advised the parties that it does not have availability on its trial calendar until the middle of 2025, and denied the trial continuance. After the hearing last month, I spoke with one of the district attorneys assigned to the investigation prosecution of defendant. The district attorney informed me that he has no objection to this civil action moving forward and going to trial in October 2023. First, it's essential to note that the month before, both parties were in agreement about rescheduling the trial date. This agreement stemmed from the understanding that evidence from the digital devices was critical for both parties. Consequently, it's reasonable to assume that both sides privately acknowledge that this delay would affect depositions and other discovery processes. Their joint agreement, filed just a month prior, coincided with the typical timeline for discovery and depositions, which usually end around 30 days before trial. However, these timeframes can be extended with mutual consent from both parties. Thus, it's likely that both sides were awaiting the digital devices to proceed with depositions and other aspects of discovery. It's important to clarify that while Jane Doe's attorney mentions that Manson has not conducted depositions, this statement does not carry significant weight. 
especially when viewed in the context of the crucial discovery they sought from Manson's digital devices. And it's worth noting that Jane Doe's attorney does not mention that Manson has not sat for a deposition. Rather, the statement pertains to Manson's attorneys not having conducted depositions of Jane Doe and others. In essence, it may seem like they're waiting until the last minute, but this is more likely standard procedure given the circumstances. When it comes to Ashley Walter's appeal, it's still moving forward. And at this time, the appeal is a little over a year old, or more specifically, about 14 months in. One update we had this summer was Manson's brief in response to Ashley Walters. Take a listen to what YouTuber and attorney Steve of Southern Law has to say about this. You can also listen to the full video with his commentary on his YouTube channel. So her first argument is the court was just wrong. The second complaint was good enough. It invokes, she says, those defenses against the statute of limitations, not as established, but at least as issues that should be tested one way or the other by evidence, the discovery rule and the estoppel. And so it shouldn't have been thrown out at the beginning of the suit. Here, probably wisely, she even quotes and references at length the federal judge's decision finding similar accusations by Bianco raised a fact issue on estoppel, and so an order of dismissal in that case, based on the complaint itself, was not appropriate. Was that decision precedent? Maybe in the street use of that word, but legally it is not binding precedent on the California Court of Appeals. Now, the Court of Appeals may find the reasoning interesting or not, compelling or not, but on this matter of state law, it has no obligation to defer to the federal district court. It really would be the other way around, precedent-wise, on state court claims. But still, again, I think it's wise for her to use this because it shows at least one independent court found a fact issue in a similar case. And a motion to dismiss should be denied if there's any alleged legal theory that would result in relief. Let's move on to her ace in the hole, the statute changed. The trial court had found the 10-year statute of limitations did not apply retroactively. But effective January 1st, 2023, it was revised to make retroactive effect clear. This section applies to any action described in Subdivision A that is based upon conduct that occurred on or after January 1st, 2009 is commenced on or after January 1st, 2019 if it would have been barred solely because of the applicable statute of limitations. The claims are hereby revived and may be commenced until December 31st, 2026. But that section only applies to a fairly specific definition of sexual assault. However, she also cites another section of the statute that was changed that the entity defendant claims or an entity's, in this case, a company, okay, or something like that. It can be even a sole proprietor, I think, but whatever, an entity. That those claims are similarly revived based on an attempt to cover up. That's one of the activating factors that get you this retroactive statute of limitations. And that's important because under that section, it's not limited to just sexual assault claim. It also revives similar claims or related claims. That's basically her argument is all of the things that you can think of. The judge made the wrong decision to begin with. Judge should have let me amend my complaint again. She cites some law for that saying that should be freely done or whatever. And then the statute changed. So eventually, that all looks pretty compelling, at least to some degree. In fact, it's so compelling that Manson's lawyers, right out of the gate, concede that she's correct on the claim for sexual assault. He says the judge was right at the time, but the law has changed. And for the claim involving sexual assault, it should be revived, further proceedings, reinstated. But not these other claims, Manson says, and we'll get into that. But again, just that alone means her lawsuit, if the Court of Appeals agrees with both parties who agree with each other that the law has changed here, her suit could go forward 
on the sexual assault claim against Manson. So that's a big deal if you care about cases against him for this kind of activity. However, Manson's team does not concede that all the rest of the claims should come back or even that they should come back against him or the entities or whatever. And he addresses her arguments as to delayed discovery. The brief literally says, no way. Manson says this doesn't involve hidden facts or latent injury. Everything she's talking about is stuff she knew. She was an adult fully aware of what was going on. She reacted to things. Sometimes she got away from situations. How can she act like she didn't know what was going on with her? He cites a case saying discovery rule applies if you do not have reason to know the factual basis for the claims. And he says there was nothing to discover later. She knew it all back in 2010 to the degree that it happened. Now, as to equitable estoppel, Manson's team says allegations that he made threats against other people. Well, that's not an excuse for her to wait a decade to file her claim. But eh, there's more to it than that. Well, Manson's team argues even Walters doesn't claim to have forgotten or repressed it all. And that's why she has to bring up equitable estoppel. That's eh, a pretty good point, which that's based on threats, the estoppel part. They argue her suit shows that she knew about the acts against her. She never forgot about them, certainly not all of it. And so she can't claim that she first knew about abuse by Manson a decade after it occurred. And again, I, th I think that's pretty solid. Now, the next argument on the estoppel, that's a little bit more of a mixed bag. Manson's team says the alleged threats by Manson were vague and directed to other people. But his counsel admits that the allegations are unsavory. And I would suggest reading them and you will find out that that's, uh, that word certainly applies to the allegations. But to me, if you read it, the, the alleged activities, if they occurred, seems to be a mix of things against her and others. And I don't think it's necessarily fair to say it's all against others. If what she's saying is true, I can understand what her narrative means, whether you agree with it or not. Now, finally, on the revised statute of limitations, Manson's team concedes it does revive a claim, as I had told you before, but only under the specific definition of sexual assault. And so Manson's team says it only affects one claim, and that's a good argument. Still, you'd rather it not be there, right? The whole point was to get her suit gone, and it's going to come back even by his own attorney's arguments. But that still leaves the other revised statute of limitations out there for the entities that can be subject to retroactive statute of limitations if there's an appropriate allegation of a cover-up. The statute even mentions confidentiality agreements as a method of cover-up. Manson's team says, yeah, but if the agreement is signed before the abuse, it can't be a way to cover up later abuse. And the statute mentions covering up prior incidents of abuse. I think that really depends, doesn't it? Doesn't it depend on how you use the agreement after the abuse occurs? So I don't know about that. The big impact here is if the entity clause is able to be used, it revives related claims. And that's not as narrow as the definition of sexual assault. Like it even talks about harassment and wrongful termination and stuff like that and just related claims. So now Mance's team throws one final shot saying, well, even if she is right, Your Honor, or honors, as the case may be here, uh, it's only as to entities and not the individual Manson. And that, that might be right. I understand that from the language of the statute. But if she can bring all these claims back against Marilyn Manson records and entities and the sexual assault claim against Marilyn Manson, well, then she's pretty much back in the game, isn't she? When it comes to Bianca Kine's lawsuit in New York, there are no new updates at this time. Months ago, Manson's attorney filed to dismiss this lawsuit entirely, 
but the judge has yet to make a decision on this, according to court records. Moving on to some updates in Manson's lawsuit, Wood and Gore both filed requests for attorney's fees to be paid by Manson. This relates to the anti-slap, free speech court ruling back in May, which I previously covered on this podcast, but these motions were not filed until July. Because Wood and Gore both won large parts of their free speech arguments, the judge previously agreed with them that Manson owes attorney fees and costs. With Wood and Gore later filing these motions to address the costs and fees they wanted Manson to pay for, which is fairly normal and part of this process. Wood is asking for $346,470 in attorney's fees and $9,193.67 in costs related to the anti-slap, $22,050 in attorney's fees incurred in connection with preparing this motion and supporting evidence, and $10,100 in attorney's fees that Wood anticipates will be incurred in connection with a reply brief and hearing on this motion. In all, Wood is requesting under $400,000. As for Gore, she is asking for $204,483.25, or at a minimum, $174,187.60 at a discounted rate. Here's where things could potentially get interesting. Manson has already filed an appeal on the court's anti-slap ruling. If he succeeds in his appeal, it could impact this attorney's fees issue. Because if Manson is successful in his appeal, this could mean he doesn't owe any attorney's fees. What I am not clear on is how this might be affected if Manson wins some things on appeal, and not others. Either way, it appears a court date on this issue is set for January 25th, 2024, and February 1st, 2024. As it relates to Manson's appeal on the anti-slap, it is slow-moving and is expected to be. Currently, it doesn't seem that briefs from Manson are due, nor have they been filed. Once I obtain the details, I'll share the specific aspects that Manson is contesting from the anti-slap ruling. It's important to note that despite a trial date being set for May 2024 on the court's calendar, it won't proceed as planned. Filing the appeal effectively puts the lawsuit on hold until the appeal concludes. This means that we shouldn't anticipate a trial until at least 2025. Another noteworthy development in Manson's lawsuit against Wood and Gore involves the court receiving up to three anonymous letters. In July, legal documents revealed that the judge received an anonymous letter and promptly notified all involved parties. Subsequently, the judge disclosed she received a second anonymous letter, which is the same time this legal filing became public with this information. The judge mentioned that this second letter was nearly identical to the first, but not entirely so. The legal filing also describes that ordinarily, such letters are returned to their sender without their contents being revealed. However, these particular letters lacked return addresses and any form of identification, which resulted in the judge looking at the contents in these letters. According to the details in the legal filings, the letters describe events involving individuals who were minors at the time, and their identities could potentially be ascertained from the contents of the communications. And because of the nature of these letters, the courtroom was sealed and these letters were not made public. What followed was a joint stipulation with Manson, Wood, and Gore all agreeing to make the letters and envelopes public. By early August, a new third anonymous letter was received at court. Following the reception of this third letter by the court, a new joint stipulation emerged, with Manson, Wood, and Gore all in agreement to keep these letters and their accompanying envelopes sealed. Subsequently, the judge rendered a decision to seal two of the letters while directing the destruction of the third. Furthermore, 
Any forthcoming letters received by the court will also face immediate destruction. As for the exact nature of these letters and their content, it remains speculative. However, given that we are aware they contain allegations concerning minors, it's reasonable to assume a connection to making allegations against Manson. Looking at Manson's lawsuit, one of his allegations involves Gore allegedly spreading rumors that his short art horror film, which she has never seen, contained child pornography, which is an interesting aspect to consider that some anonymous person would be directing allegations to a judge about minors versus law enforcement. Either way, it's crucial to re-emphasize that the contents of the letter are not public, and anything I say about them is purely speculation. Here's what Southern Law had to say about these anonymous letters back in early August. Hey guys, you probably know that somebody's trying to be a pen pal with a judge in the Manson versus Evan Rachel Wood and Ilma Gore case, right? Somebody started sending letters to the judge with what uh, is believed to be accusations against Manson, further accusations, maybe involving people not in this case. Why would somebody do that and why would they do it anonymously? not sure about that. I mean, this judge had already ruled pretty much as much in favor of the defendants as she could on the motion to strike, case getting ready to go upon appeal. How would you possibly be helping the people accusing Manson by trying to disrupt the case at this point? In fact, it's so far from that, you'd wonder if somebody trying to help Manson was doing it, but that doesn't make any sense either. It just doesn't make any sense. I know I've seen a lot of speculation about what this means for the judge, et cetera, and at one point it looked like the letters were going to be published but the letter writing campaign has continued and I think that's not gonna happen. Now, got some documents from the Manson cases, check her out because she's, I'm sure, gonna post up the original sources, which I think is always the best thing to look at, but I'm gonna look at a, a stipulation at this point that we have, because I think there's gonna be another one, but still, this gives you some details about what's going on. Let's take a look at it. All right, so this is a joint stipulation regarding anonymous letters received by the court. Again, I think this is gonna be supplanted with a new one, but originally they were gonna publish these letters. You'll see they've changed their mind. All right, so all the parties, okay, uh, Manson, Wood, and Gore stipulate as follows. In other words, they all agree. Um, they had a meeting about the anonymous letters. They were conditionally lodged under seal by the court. And they continued that, but the court got a third anonymous letter on or around August 1st, 2023. And the parties understand that if the court continues to receive anonymous letters, the court may just throw them away without opening them. So now they've, the parties have agreed to enter into a new stipulation regarding the letters received by the court, replacing the prior stipulation. The parties all agree, and remember, they don't agree on much, right? But here they do that their July 19th stipulation is withdrawn. None of the parties will seek to unseal the letters received by the court to date. The parties stipulate and agree that should the court receive any additional similar letters, the parties consent to the court sealing or discarding such letters as the court deems appropriate without the need for further status conference or notice to the parties. So that's the end game for the anonymous letters thing. They're not even going to have any meetings about it anymore. And they tell the court, like, if you want to just throw them away from now on, that's fine. And what did come in, that can stand or seal. And let's stop this because talking about publishing them, perhaps encouraged whoever's doing it, maybe to keep on sending letters. And if you start throwing them away and all that, maybe it'll stop. And at least it won't matter anymore. So that's, it's very weird, of course, but a lot of weird things in the, in the Manson cases. And I don't know more than, than this about it. And maybe this is all we're going to find out about it. Moving forward, I'd like to discuss an ongoing documentary reportedly centered on Marilyn Manson, currently in production by Channel 4 UK. 
For those unfamiliar with Channel 4 UK, they are the same network that brought us the documentary covering Depp v. Heard, initially released in the UK last fall and on Netflix. However, this documentary specifically has recently caused a bit of a controversy due to concerns regarding the unauthorized use of copyrighted content owned by YouTubers and other content creators, and as a result, several YouTubers are currently considering legal action. This is significant as it might relate to the Manson documentary. I am aware that multiple YouTubers have been approached to contribute clips or even entire videos for this project. One notable example is Colonel Kurtz, who has openly discussed this on her YouTube channel and on social media a couple of weeks ago. While she will be providing some of her videos for this documentary, the specific clips and the documentary's overall approach remain uncertain. But it's important to note that whispers of this documentary are not entirely new. Last summer, there was chatter on Instagram about someone being approached to interview for this documentary but nothing was ever truly confirmed until YouTubers were reached out to. From what I have heard and from what I am able to share, this documentary will be released sometime in the spring or summer of 2024. In short, very little information has been made available about who is part of this documentary, who is the director, what the angle is, etc. I personally have not been approached by anyone asking to use my short social media videos or the few YouTube videos I have, but I'm not planning on it either. Yet in recent days, a new documentary was released by Channel 4 UK called Russell Brand, In Plain Sight, and apparently, Channel 4 UK is now investigating allegations claiming this documentary was not fully fact-checked, which is absolutely abhorrent considering this documentary details serious allegations of rape and abuse, and purports to have seen and shared evidence in articles and in their own documentary, which has already aired. To be clear, I have no stance on the Russell Brand allegations. My point is, fact-checking is one major issue that occurs when it comes to documentaries as it is often left up to directors and producers, and that is if they fact-check at all. But there is also the problem of only having one side of a story, because how can a documentary be fact-based if all you ever have is one side of a story? At the end of the day, these documentaries are a form of entertainment. They are a way to make money. Incentives like that can't be ignored. As far as information goes, that is all I know for now on this documentary. But I will keep you all updated as I learn more. Lastly, I'd like to address a concerning issue that has been surfacing on social media, particularly within Manson hate pages. This issue pertains to the spread of misinformation, specifically in relation to the upcoming Jane Doe trial. Some individuals on these pages have taken to labeling people like myself, who advocate for reading and discussing the legal filings, as propagandists. However, it's crucial to remember that legal filings are what each side is stating as factual, and outline each side's claims. One such hate page, followed even by some journalists, recently made claims on social media that Jane Doe possesses a substantial number of medical records, witnesses, and several other victims corroborating her allegations of abuse. But before we accept these assertions at face value, let's dig a bit deeper. Firstly, the contents of Jane Doe's medical records remain sealed and are not accessible to the public. Therefore, this statement is inaccurate. Secondly, it's important to note that both parties involved in a legal dispute typically present their own set of witnesses. And once again, this information is currently sealed and not accessible to the public. Thirdly, and this is something that can be easily fact-checked, the existence of other women making similar allegations does not inherently corroborate Jane Doe's specific claims. It's essential to remember that corroboration requires evidence. 
Just because several others claim to be victims doesn't make her allegations any more true or false. However, it's worth noting that Jane Doe herself has stated in her own lawsuit that these events were suppressed due to repressed memories, and she did not remember until after the allegations were made public. In summary, it's crucial to approach such claims with a critical eye, relying on evidence and facts rather than unsubstantiated assertions. It is one thing to offer speculation, as I often do, but to state things as a fact when it's easily and provably wrong is misinformation. As I continue to follow the lawsuits, allegations, and Los Angeles investigation, it's essential for you to stay informed, question assumptions, and always seek out facts over fiction. For now, stay tuned for my next episode of the Marilyn Manson Cases podcast, which will air just days before the first civil trial against Marilyn Manson. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support this podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest updates on the Marilyn Manson lawsuits and allegations, you can follow me on social media as The Manson Cases. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.